It's always a challenge on the mic sometimes. <laughs> uh, just anywhere, you know, it's just, it's always funny how microphones are always gimmicky sometimes. But uh, my name is Drew. I know most of you. Some of you I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, bringing, uh, we're going to look at Jonah 2 today. And uh, thankful to be here. Hang on, let me just uh, change my timer here. So... I know where I am, <laughs> so we get out before lunch, I guess. But um, no, let's let's hear God's word from Jonah, uh, chapter two uh, here. So I'll read for us the text this morning. Uh, then Jonah prayed to the Lord as God from the belly of the fish, saying, "I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and You heard my voice." For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from, from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up from the life of the pit. Brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Jonah is the only prophet that has ever been regurgitated. Uh, so if you want some Bible trivia, uh, he is the only one that's ever been spit up out of a fish. So it's a, a unique experience. Uh, experience I don't think you and I will go through. But I loved as a song, you know, just singing that. You imagine Jonah in the midst of this big fish. And just crying out to God because we see this shift that happens in the prophet Jonah here uh, in this chapter 2 from what we saw in chapter 1. Many of you know my son, his name is Jonah. He gets very excited when his book gets mentioned. Uh, There's a um, Jesus Storybook Bible that I don't know if you're familiar with it, but we read it a lot. And... um, for, for like a year there, I'd ask him, okay, what story are we reading tonight? And it's Running Away. Uh, that's the title of the story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's all he wanted to read the whole time was his story. Even though Jonah's not necessarily an example of uh, what we long to see in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Uh, but he loved the story, Run Away. He loves Jonah Williams for the Bengals, who is the um, left tackle, soon to be the right tackle, or he'll be traded. But uh, anything to do with his name... He loves, uh, but it's just, it's always fun when I tell him, you know, speaking on Jonah, how, how he lights up uh, with that. But uh, we, we learned um, last week just about Jonah and that Jonah had fled from the presence of God there. And um, Jonah, my son, also loves uh, these books. I don't know if any of your kids have read them, but they're these battle books of who would win. So it's like, who would win a... Sand tiger shark uh, versus the blue octop- blue ringed octopus or something like this. And so it just walks through these battles and he loves uh, thinking about those things. And it's always like these sea creature 
uh, battles there, the, the great white shark versus the giant manta ray. Uh, and the book of Jonah kind of sets itself up as a bit of a battle, um, and it's God and Jonah uh, in that sense. And it, let's just say it doesn't go well for Jonah um, with that. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop Jonah from trying, as we learned last week, that um, what Jonah discovers that no one running from God is ever free. And so what he wanted to do uh, at that time is he, he thought that he could flee uh, both from the word of God, of what, called him to, what God called him to do to, to go to Nineveh, but also from uh, the presence of God. And so he, you know, God says, go to, uh, go to Nineveh and go tell them about their sin and call them back, uh, call them to me. And Jonah just says, nope, I don't think so. And not only did he stay where he was, he actually goes and says, I'm going to take it a step further and go the opposite way of where you're calling me to go. And it says that he sought to flee the presence of the Lord. We just see him in this spiritual decline, uh, the state of where he decided uh, that the bounds in which he had agreed with God that he would live within and be a prophet within, that God was calling him to do something outside that bounds, to, to go to uh, the city of Nineveh and the, uh, his mortal enemies, the Assyrians. Uh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria at that time, and those were com- the complete enemies of the people of Israel. Uh, and so he had decided that he just couldn't do it. And so he is fleeing, that God is sending him, Jonah's fleeing, the Assyrians were there, and God longed uh, for them to repent, to turn from their sin, and Jonah decided because of his, he just didn't see his own benefit, uh, how it benefited him or his people uh, for that to happen. And so a huge storm comes, the crew tosses over the cargo, and he's on the ship, they make sacrifices to their gods and no avail. Uh, the storm is, incre- is increasing, it's getting worse and worse, if you remember, everyone else, they're throwing cargo over the ship. They're crying out to their gods. They're, they don't hear anything back. And Jonah's down below asleep. And the sailors come down. And they say, Jonah, you've got to wake up. You've got to pray to your God. And Jonah knows instantly, and he tells them what's happening, uh, that, there's, that, that he is re- fleeing from the presence of God. And they, he says, throw me, throw me over. Toss me into the storm, and you'll be saved. And they reluctantly relent. They toss Jonah overboard, and the sea becomes calm. The storm ceases. And so we pick up here in in chapter 2, this shift that happens in Jonah. And so I want to look at three things uh, from Jonah's prayer. Chapter 2 really is a prayer. It's almost a a poem, a poetic prayer. Uh, These three things and how uh, what we can learn from them. One is desperation. Two, we're going to look at his deliverance. And then three, uh, dependency. One, desperation. We see here, Jonah says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. And Jonah prays. So he prays to God and God listens that God hears his, his prayer. So, so instantly we see, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. The language Jonah uses here has, has such a weight to it. If you were, if, as we read this, See, it's just this place uh, that almost his life was over as he knew it. That he, he thought he was going to run from God there. And then I think he just accepted pretty much that he was going to die for this. That, that this would cost him his life. 
In verse 5, he says, the deep surrounded me and the waters closed over to take my life. Uh, And then look at verse 2 when he says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Uh, Sheol was this name, was a name for a place of residence of the dead, the underworld. It's used often in the Old Testament. You, You read it a lot in the Psalms where David will pray things like, don't abandon my soul to Sheol. It was this uh, a place of the dead. It was a place completely without hope, a place of no return. And so when he's saying it, it, it's deeper than just my life is going to be over, there's a depth and a weight that, that not only what's happening to Jonah physically at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, but, but spiritually too, he's crying out the belly of Sheol, that, that I'm as good as dead, that my life is over, that I've been disconnected not only from my physical life, but also uh, from God. Years ago, a pastor used to say regularly, regularly, we are all a phone call away from our lives being completely changed. Uh, One phone call, one text message from our lives being completely changed. Now, it's usually not that we won the lottery uh, or that the Nigerian prince did come through on his promises, if you ever get those emails uh, there. No, it's not that. Usually... We are one phone call, one text message away from just complete tragedy, complete suffering of the things that we've held so close just being disrupted from our, our lives. There's a, there's a desperation at that moment. And the longer that we live, the more pain, the more sorrow, the more loss, the more discouragement that we can experience. We see broken relationships. We see lost income and and jobs. We see injustice that happens uh, to us or to others all around the world. We see chronic illness, sudden illness, friends who die suddenly, friends who suffer deeply from depression. Uh, We see things like people taking their own lives, anxiety over things that people have said to us, guilt over things we've inflicted on others, shame, sense of unease. There's something deeply wrong within us and within this world that causes so much pain. And we see that in Jonah, this desperation here. See, it's the pain that often draws us really to the deepest questions of life. Uh, It draws us out of kind of everything else when we realize that we're just not in control at all. There's so much that we seek to control with our lives, the dreams that we have, the things that we want, our career goals, the money we want to make, the house we want to live in, the Bengals winning the Super Bowl. Um, no, but there's a lot of things just throughout life that, that one phone call, one, one thing can, can draw us back to this place of what is God doing? Does God care? Is God here? What happens when I die? Is there hope? Will there be justice someday for all the injustice? We see the sailors on the ship. See, they exhausted all their earthly means of salvation when they're there. The sailors, they're throwing the cargo, probably we can presume the thing that pays their bills uh, in the midst of the storm, and they're just tossing it over the sea. They're saying... I'd rather lose out all my income and everything else before I die. And so they toss that over. And then the sailors, too, we see, are praying to their own gods and crying out to their gods. And yet all that they get is silence. And they, they cast lots and it turns to Jonah. And then Jonah says, 
that it's the God who made the seas and who made the dry land that I follow. And I know exactly why this is happening. But it's, it's often through pain. It's often through those things that God uses to bring us to him and bring us back to him. There's this restoration that's happening with Jonah where in chapter 1, he's in this point of spiritual decline. He's running from God. He's running from the word of God. He's running, running from how God longs for him to live. But now in chapter 2, we see this shift that happens, a, a desperation where Jonah cries out and he comes back and longs now suddenly for the presence of God and the purposes of God. Uh, Jesus' storybook Bible uh, has a line uh, from the story of Naaman. Naaman's in the chap- uh, Second Kings chapter 5. Uh, Naaman was a general in Syria. It's an Old Testament story. If, if anyone remembers it, it, it shows how he was rich and mighty and had all these, everything you could imagine. The commander of an army, um, all the riches and all the power. But one thing happened to Naaman that he had a disease called leprosy. And the leprosy, there's just no cure for it. And so limbs fall off, uh, things begin to rot. They don't, you know, you don't know that what's happening because you just become numb to everything that happens in your body and you slowly die. But Naaman goes and he hears from a girl, uh, a, a girl from Israel who he had carried off in captivity. And she tells him about uh, Elisha who could, could, could potentially heal him. So Naaman goes and he goes to, uh, writes the king of Israel. And he says, I heard you can heal me. And the king of Israel rips his garments and says, I can't do that. I can't heal you. But, but then Elisha gets word and he sends it to Naaman saying, no, come, I God wants to heal you. So Naaman goes, he goes to Elijah's house. He doesn't go to the palace in Israel. And Elijah doesn't even bother to come out. He just sends a servant. If, uh, and the servant comes and says, Naaman, you've got to wash seven times on this dirty river. And he's like, I'm not washing in this river from Israel, these people. I'm, I'm not going there. And he, he stomps out. But then he comes back and he washes seven times and he's healed. And there's this line in the story, I just love it. It says, all you need is nothing, but nothing was the one thing he did not have. That all that we need to come to know God, to be restored to his presence, to know Jesus, to know God's love, to be healed, uh, to, to see, um, to have hope, all you need is nothing, but nothing was the one thing he did not have. And how often... It is when we see God, that's the one thing often we don't have. And that's the story of the Christian life oftentimes of, of just seeing our sin, our pride, the things that we put uh, up over and above the glory of God and the wonder of God and following God and the purposes of God. Um, but all we need is nothing. And that's what we see happens to Jonah here. You see deliverance second. So we see his desperation in deliverance, verse 6, he says, You brought my life from the pit. Uh, from ashes to beauty, from death to life, from darkness to light, from depression, or, or sorry, so from the kingdom, the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of his son, from the pit to salvation. These are descriptions the Bible gives, the scriptures give of the work of God for us. From ashes to beauty, death to life, darkness to light. From the kingdom, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. From the pit, as Jonah says, 
to salvation. There's a deliverance, a salvation that comes here. So we see, too, how incredibly patient God is with Jonah. Uh, everyone else is obeying God but Jonah in this story. It's, it's kind of amazing. As you read this book, everything is obeying God except for Jonah. Um, the sailors obey God. The winds and the sea obey God. The fish obeys God when God commands the fish to both swallow him and then regurgitate him. Uh, the people of Nineveh end up, we'll see that, you know, I, don't, I hope I'm not spoiling, uh, but they end up obeying God. But the one person not obeying God throughout this story is Jonah. Um, yet, God is patient with him. And God's patient with us. And it's, it's one of the greatest gifts. And one thing, I, as I was reading this and studying and praying and writing, um, one characteristic of God that I just, I feel like I regularly miss in my life is that God listens. Uh, we hear God often. We hear, his, you know, God commands. Uh, God tells us what to do, that we're obedient, we follow and those are good things. But Jonah here is at the bottom of the sea. And he says, the weeds had wrapped around my head. I was dead. And I cried out. And he says, God heard me. That He says, and you heard my voice. Nothing else around. And yet God comes and he hears his voice. When everything seems silent, when our lives seem just, we don't know what's happening or what's going on. I think that reminder that God listens, that God knows us, that he hears us when we cry, and he longs for us to come to him in prayer. Despite how much we've sought in our life to run from his presence or to run from what he calls us to do, God is calling us to him. Verse 6, yeah, you brought my life from the pit. This is a form of resurrection, uh, verse 9, Jonah says, salvation is from the Lord. So if you were to summarize the Bible in five words, let me see. I'm just double checking. Uh, I think, yeah, salvation is from the Lord. If you were to summarize the Bible in five words, it'd be hard to, to, to find a greater summary than those five words. If we look at the story of God and the story of what he's doing and what he's doing within us, that salvation, its source, uh, is from God the Father sending the Son, empowered by the Spirit, to save a people from their sins, from, their, from their, the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, from the punishment of sin, uh, from the presence of sin, ultimately. That God is doing that through the work of Christ, that salvation is from God. And notice this, one, we need to be saved. Salvation. That God isn't a uh, baseball coach there to cheer us on. He's not a mascot there to go say, I'm, I'm cheering for the way that you want to live your life. I'm cheering for you. No, it implies that we need to be saved. That we are in a desperate condition because of our sin and because of what we see the fall back in Genesis 3. That, that we are in a pit and unable to rescue ourselves. In salvation's source, 
our hope of knowing the steadfast love of God, you know, it's from God. It's not dependent on, on you or me and what you or I can do or what we can bring to God. See, um, it's all what God has done for us. And this is the push of Christianity, really, against all other forms of religion or a lot of forms of thought that salvation, the way that we get to God is not from what we bring to God. Uh, the way that we get to God is what He has done for us in Christ. And it's by faith, it's through faith that God uh, brings us and resurrects us and restores us and brings us back to Himself. So its source is, is directed to us and it's got all that God has done for us, not what we bring to God. And it pushes against this idea that somehow I can do something that will make God love me. Or the opposite side, this idea that I am just a complete disappointment to God because I just can't seem to do what he wants me to do. Have you ever been there? Where it just it's almost as though God's angry at me because I just can't get it together. I just can't figure it out. I'm not following him wholeheartedly. And God again and again reminds us that he is the source of salvation. That is through him and through Christ that, that keeps us. That he unites us in Christ through faith. That it's not the degree of our faith that saves us. It's God who saves us. The source, it's the object of our faith. Not faith itself. It's the object that, that draws us and that saves us. And so this is what we see. Through his dying, Jesus, like Jonah, was tossed into the storm to bear the judgment we deserve. And Jesus, like Jonah, spent three days in the darkness as Jonah spent three days in the fish and rising again. And then Jesus rose again, ascends to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. And that we who are dead in our sins, deserving of God's wrath, can be forgiven. And see, this hope goes deeper than any sort of meaning that, that we try and create you know, as a life apart from God and Christ. And finally, let's look at dependency. Jonah says, verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. There's a difference between being sent by God and knowing the God who sends you. Um, we can exert our lives seeking to live for God and all the while not known, knowing Him. That we could seek to, to be within and do the things that God longs for and read the Bible and study and pray and seek to follow God uh, and you know, be going after what God commands and want other people to follow God's commands, but at the same time, not know his presence, not know his love, not know his grace, not know his forgiveness. You look at even Judas in the Bible who follows Jesus for three years, day in, day out. He's there. He's there when he's preaching. He's there with them. He's in the inner circle. And yet at the same time, he never knew him. He never know, knew his presence or his love. That there was this distance created within him because his heart longed for other things and the same thing that all he needed was nothing, but nothing is the one thing he did not have. And there's 
when we think of Jesus also, do we see him both as the one who says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and yet also says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And you see what happens, the shift in Jonah from chapter 1? He sought to flee from the presence of God. In chapter 2, he's seeking to flee to the presence of God. He, he longs to go in the temple. The temple in that day in the Old Testament has a special place for where the presence of God dwells. If you wanted to meet with God in a sure way, God was everywhere. But if you want to meet with God in a sure way throughout the Old Testament, the temple, that was the center place of where things were. So we see Jonah get running as far away from that as he can in chapter 1. And now we see this longing in the midst of the belly of the fish, this deep longing uh, to once again go back to the temple, to to encounter the presence of God, to experience uh, the goodness of God. And so we see not only just that he's desperate, but we see also that God delivers him and there's now this dependency on him. One of my favorite verses are just that, that really stood out to me said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Isn't that what we all want from life? To be healed? To be told that we're loved? To be heard? To be listened to? And to know a steadfast love. I just love that word. That God, uh, throughout the scriptures and throughout our life, has a steadfast love. And when we give ourselves and our hearts flee to other things or turn to other things, we're forsaking that hope of steadfast love that that God has set his love on us uh, that we might know him and know love through all the pain and all the desperation and all the disappointments and all the discouragements and all the great good times of life that we would be those that say, I know the steadfast love of God, what Jesus has done for me. Um, in 2012, I, I think it was 2012, it was 2011, 2012, I went on a trip to South Sudan. Um, we flew from, uh, to Entebbe, uh, Uganda, which is just outside Kampala. And then we took the plane, uh, this twin prop plane that we climbed in, uh, which I thought I wouldn't be here. Uh, it was almost certain death from, from the time when I got, you know, get on this plane ride uh, from in Tebe into South Sudan. South Sudan had just become the newest nation at the time. Uh, there had been years and years of war, millions of people killed uh, throughout Sudan over the years. They would, um, they would just drop bombs whenever they saw people. And uh, so we go there, we land this, this dirt uh, path on the pl- plane and then figure out the visa process. We were pretty some of the first to write, so we're, it's like this little hut on this dirt airway, and they're trying to figure out what the visa process looks like with all this. Uh, but then we, we go, and we're on the road, and along the side of the road, you can see the UN is, has demining machines all, all throughout, just in the fields and everything else, that they're actually pulling up landmines in different spots throughout Ye that had been planted. That there were, um, we went and worked with a church there in Ye, Sudan, um, and they had built a number of orphanages and, and a number of the, the, the kids there had been, their parents had died in the war. Uh, some had died from landmines. Others had died from raids and villages, all kinds of, just 
this incredible sorrow, and as you sit there and you see it, you see, um, I remember them showing us around different areas, and they'd show us where the bomb shelter was uh, during the war, and then they'd show us craters that were bombs that hit around, and it just this experience that I had no clue that someone could experience all of this within their life. Uh, and we went to the Sunday service at this church, and it was in this hut. It was a it was night. It was like a bigger, just open air uh, thing there, right, right there. And it, it was a Presbyterian church, believe it or not. So <laughs> it was kind of crazy because I was used to like what a Presbyterian church was. It had all this, you know, structure and order, and you know, Presbyterians aren't known for their charisma uh, <laughs> in, in general <laughs> with the church. Uh, and so I wasn't fully prepared for what I was going to experience next, but. When, when you know the stories of the people there who'd gather in this church and yay, and how much they had suffered years and years and how many, almost all of them, you know, would have relatives that have died or been killed or just disappeared or not known. And you see things and you, they hear things regularly about raids uh, up there, you know, recruiting child soldiers. And I mean, it's just the weight of the suffering of these people it was almost too much to bear just hearing about it. And then you, you gather with them on Sunday in the service, and there was such a, you know, using that word jubilee, like such a thankfulness, such a gratefulness to God. There was dancing everywhere. There was, I mean, it was just like this whole scene of a, a, a gratefulness and a singing and a, a God who saves. And um, I don't know, oftentimes... Uh, seeing the church worship throughout the world in different places, you get a glimpse of what God is doing and hearing what other people have been through in their life and you see that the degree of desperation there that has happened to them and you just see that, that God was not simply a crutch. You know, he was salvation. God was hope that we can live not knowing if we die tomorrow and yet... There's hope that we would be resurrected, that we would be restored, that no matter what's happening in our life, God will restore, that God will heal, that God will judge, <laughs> and that God will be gracious to those who, not of themselves, because, but because Jesus lived fully obedient to God the Father, because he died and took the wrath that we deserve, because he rose, that we too will rise again. I don't know if you're a follower of Christ, where you are, or maybe you're unsure or, or those things, but God's call to us is that, that, that all that we need is nothing. And I think the big question is for us, is, is nothing all that we have? And, and there's this point where it's a continual renewal, continual restoration that Jesus longs for us, and leads us back. Tim Keller uh, says this. He says, The New Testament tells us that Jesus came to the earth the first time not to bring judgment, but to bear it. He had come to put down all evil and sin. There would have been no hope for anyone. Therefore, he calms the storm the way Jonah did by being cast into the sea of sin in order to save others from the storm of judgment. Jesus is the true Jonah who is consumed by the storm in the sea of God's wrath so that we could have peace and calm 
and be saved. See, Jonah was not only saved physically here, but he was resurrected or he was restored spiritually. And this is Jonah's prayer of confession. Later on, chapter 4, we'll see his prayer of anger. And, and so that's where we see this, this idea that God is patient, God is gracious with us in spite of us. Because it's not based upon what I bring to God, but what God has done for us in Jesus. Desperation, all you need is nothing, but it was the one thing he did not have. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Deliverance, Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And then dependency, verse 4, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Let's pray.